0: You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. going through the book of Acts, just verse by verse through the whole book, started at the very beginning of January, and we're just going to keep rolling through the book uh, until we get done, really the bridge between the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament to help us see really how the faith was formed, about how God is carrying out the mission that he has given us, so the name of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, So we're going to be looking at Peter's sermon today, the first part of it, which is really the first ever Christian sermon given after the ascension of Christ. Uh, before I pray, I'd like to uh, welcome uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and his family. My good friend Bart Barber uh, is here this morning. Bart, will you stand up and say hello so we can just thank you? There he is back there. Bart, welcome. We're glad you're here. Bart's also a pastor, a pastor in Texas. He's on his way to Orlando, and they decided to stop here. So if you've got any beef at the Southern Baptist Convention, give Bart the business out in the lobby after the service. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your love for us. And we are thankful we have the word of God. What a privilege it is we had the words of our creator available to us. I ask we'll be good stewards of that. That you speak through me this morning, that you give all of us here minds to understand, eyes to see, Lord ears to hear, hearts to receive, the truth of the scriptures point us ultimately uh, to the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, and one day coming again. Thank you for Bart and his leadership, and I ask you to use him, uh, that we will be able to cooperate with a lot of churches to keep sending missionaries all around the world and plant churches all over the country, and I just ask you to give him grace in his leadership role, and I thank you for the grace that he is leading with uh, during these difficult times. I ask you to be with all the churches in our city as they gather today. Uh, I also ask that you keep the enemy out of this place and out of our city And let the name of Christ be proclaimed in every pulpit in this community, and may it be meaningful to our lives as we go forward. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, So Peter is about to speak, and before I even jump into the sermon, it just uh, stuck out to me, and we talked about this at Easter a few years ago, uh, for the Easter Sermon at the Civic Center that week, that Peter, the disciple, is the one who's giving this really first Christian sermon here after Jesus ascended, and Peter himself is a failure, Like, this is a story of grace just in who's the one communicating. Peter denied Jesus three times. Like, had the chance to be unashamed in the name of Jesus Christ and to proclaim his allegiance to Jesus, but instead he chose his own comfort, let his own fear win out. And what did he do? He sold Jesus out. He denied that he had any faith. Just weeks before this sermon's about to happen, he turns his back on Jesus And now here he is standing up and proclaiming with confidence that Jesus Christ is Lord. That there's salvation in no one else. There's two main reasons why he's able to do that. One, as we saw last week, he's filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has dwelled in God's people, empowering them to carry out the task that he's granted them. And he's the one who's been shown grace. And he wants this exact message of grace, of the good news of Jesus to be proclaimed for all to hear starting with his own Jewish people. In the book of Mark, Jesus has already been resurrected. The announcement is being made by the angels, and here's what the angel says. says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. It's like a classic Easter text. He is not here. See the place where they put him? Like, check out the tomb yourself. It's empty, but go. Tell his disciples. And who does the angel mention? Just randomly inserts The name Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you, referring to Jesus. She didn't say, go tell all his disciples and also, Andrew, why would this be? Not that any of the disciples were perfect. All of them were in need of the Savior they were following and watching. But here's Peter just recently removed from this colossal failure. I'm not trying to read too much into the text, but how... Amazing, that God wanted his name to be included in the first to know that Jesus is in the redemption business, that yes, you failed miserably, but he is restoring you to himself. Little did Peter know what even God had in store for him, but the greatest blessing Peter could ever receive is the one who had failed and fallen short of God's glory was now being singled out as one to experience his love of the risen Christ. I think we can insert our own names into that spot. Go tell his disciples and put your name in there because he wants us to know the good news that God is not punishing us as our sins deserve. That God is the God of forgiveness, of making things new, the God of reconciliation. Go tell the disciples and then also this message would come to you. So Peter's extending the same mercy to others in the name of Jesus that was extended to him. And here's what he tells them. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. There's urgency here. Like, I'm about to tell you something significantly important about this Jesus. He had just declared in verse 21 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We covered that last week. And now verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. Like, if that doesn't get to your attention, verse 21, hear this. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you. Through him. Just as you yourselves know, you saw it yourself, you're witnesses to this. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. He says that the son was attested to, meaning Jesus. So the humanity of Jesus becomes the focus for a moment here in these verses. But him being the son of God, and it it's supported by miracles, by wonders, and by signs. He's saying that God verified this man to them. Ultimately, it would be through the resurrection, as Paul covers in 1 Corinthians 15, saying this is the, really the staple of our faith, without a resurrection, that we have no faith to stand on. But even before that, he was making this different... Obvious verifications to the people that there was something different about this man, that in fact he was fully man and fully God. God verified Jesus to them as the one that had been promised long ago. I like to say this is Jesus having a blue check mark before blue check marks were cool. He was verified as the Messiah. He's saying, God did this among you, so you were without any kind of excuse. And then he shifts from the life of Jesus to his death in verse 23. We read that the death of Christ was no accident. It was no failure on Jesus' part. Jesus didn't come here and just didn't do a very good job and just didn't execute his plans like he was supposed to. So as a result, he was going to die. It wasn't a failure, a scramble at the last minute to figure it out. Patrick Schreiner writes that this is part of the covenant blueprint, Jesus' death, in God's sovereignty, I love that, the covenant blueprint. What happened to Jesus has always been the plan. Again, he didn't just happen to end up on the cross. He was called and was known as the Lamb of God. And the Lamb, going before God, would be one brought to the priest to be slain, to have its blood shed, to give atonement to the people. And here, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, was sent to die, to shed his blood for God's people. So we see this perfect harmony of divine sovereignty and human responsibility that doesn't make God liable for the death of Christ and also doesn't remove the guilt of the people. And Peter doesn't even explain it very much. He just assumes the reality that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are at work together and he seems content with that. But there is some mystery to it. That it was ordained before the beginning of time that the son would come to die as the ultimate sacrifice for God's people, but also that those people are the ones who would put them there, would put him there. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility at work, and Peter seeming to be OK with just camping there and arriving to that conclusion. And then verse 24 shifts to the exaltation of Christ, from resurrection to ascension. that the source of the spirit coming is the victory of Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning. So what does the resurrection achieve for us? Peter says it ends the pains of death. Now that doesn't mean that on this earth there isn't still great pain in death. Death will be the ultimate enemy to be defeated once and for all when Christ returns. But it helps us realize that things are temporary. That God has made a promise to his people and that we will not stay in the tomb. Death was not able to keep Jesus, therefore it won't be able to keep us. He couldn't be held by death because he never sinned. So in his righteousness, it's his righteousness that keeps us from being held by death, secured in the promises of Christ. And he's talking to a Jewish audience here, so it's like, okay, if the resurrection's not enough... at the the miracles you saw and the signs and wonders, if those aren't enough to demand your worship of Christ, your trust in Jesus, to repent of your sins and to follow the one who came to die for you that God had promised from long before, it says, verse 25, that I'll take you back to the Old Testament, to your folk hero, David. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad what a hope for all of us, that because of our hope in Christ, that our hearts will be glad. And our tongue, my tongue rejoices. That's what we do when we sing together. We rejoice. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me. His hope, his joy, his rejoicing is tied to God's promises. You'll not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the path of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you. This is Peter now. Uh, just going to his own quote. not quoting David anymore. About the patriarch David. It's like, you know in Psalm 16 that many of you have read before and your grandmother's read to you and you were taught this in, in school and you were taught this in the home from, from the law, from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, from, the Pro, from all these things. David, they're like, oh yeah, David, we love David. Like, he's our guy. Took out Goliath. Like, he's our guy. Like, big David fans here. He mentioned that, he will, that the Holy One will not see decay. It's like, go, go check in the tomb. Verse 29, he is both dead and buried and in his tomb with us today. To be apart from the bodies, is to be one with the Lord. Our spirits go be with the Lord, but David's actual body, one day it will rise again. But right now it's sitting in a tomb and it's like anybody would, it's facing decay. Verse 30, since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on the throne and this is so crucial for the Christian faith for us, seeing what was to come. Yes, we live in the present, and God calls us to live faithfully in the present, but we have to have eyes and a mind on what is to come. We have to be able to see forward and have an eternal mindset while living on this earth. He spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. It was a future coming that was giving David hope. He was not abandoned in Hades. He was not abandoned in death and his flesh did not experience decay. Who's he talking about here? David's saying that he has hope that he won't see death because the Messiah would not remain in the tomb. David's path was one that would occupy a tomb. But his lineage through generations, by faith, he knew he would not see death because the promised Messiah would not see decay. David's a father figure to the Jews. Peter's saying, listen to him about the Messiah. David is dead, which means he cannot be the one who fulfills the psalm. And here we begin to see, even though Jesus did it regularly, the need for his disciples to read the Old Testament Christologically, meaning we see Jesus in the story of pointing to Christ throughout the, throughout the entire book. Because Jesus reframes how we read the Old Testament. When you do your Bible in a year, your devotionals, and it's like, you're going through the Old Testament, you're like, oh my word, can this hustle? You know, like, is God gonna judge me if I skip four pages? You know, that, that kind of idea. Or the only Old Testament we really realize is a little devotional we read that gives like one verse kind of thing that can go on a coffee mug or whatever it might be when we understand that Jesus is the hero the Bible is pointing to in the Old Testament, then the whole scripture has come alive. And here he is sharing the good news of the gospel with these people, and he's using the Old Testament about Christ to point point them towards it. Like his source, his resource that he's using to help them see Jesus is the rest of the Bible. Psalm 132, the Lord swore an oath to David. A promise he will not abandon. I will set one of your offspring on your throne. And God has fulfilled his promise to David in the resurrection and now ascension, the reigning one of David, Jesus Christ, that he predicted and now they've actually seen it. The Davidic king is exalted forever and it is the Lord Jesus Christ as was promised. And he tells them, this is not just for our head knowledge or understanding. It matters that you are witnesses to this. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Back in Acts 1, verse verse 8, which we covered the first week we got into Acts, he says, you will be my witnesses. These are your marching orders. This is your calling now. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, But he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, to sit at the right hand is to be given authority, to be given great power. So he's saying, now go, because Jesus is reigning. You can have full hope and full confidence that God is with you. He's fulfilling his promises that the Spirit is going to enable you. Go and now be witnesses to the risen and reigning Messiah. He quotes Psalm 110, verse 1 there. See, Peter is giving us what the ascension looks like from heaven's perspective. From our perspective, they got to watch it. Jesus ascended into heaven. They actually got to see it take place. But from heaven's perspective, here we see Christ reigning and ruling. Ephesians 1 says this, he exercised his power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. It makes just being sentimental about a baby in a manger a little different, doesn't it? that the one who was to come and who did come is this one described in the scriptures. The long-promised descendant of David, the fulfillment to the promise that his descendant would forever reign on the throne, now is the one who's going to have his enemies be his footstool. We're told in Genesis that one day the serpent, the great tempter, that his head would be crushed. And now here is Jesus with his enemies as his footstool. What a flex. I mean, what a flex. It's like popping on the LaCroix. Like, you he's know, just like, the, it's, it's the, the enemies are his footstool. So, what do you do with that information? This information that they're hearing, like, this is the one, the one that you were part of, of crucifying, he has risen which confirms for us once and for all that he actually was the one he claimed to be. He's reigning and ruling right now. We talked the second week about the rule of prophet, priest, and king. He's fulfilling all those for us once and for all right now. So what does he say in verse 36? Let all the house of Israel know with certainty. Certainty. Well, can you really know? Absolutely you can know. If there's a resurrection... You can definitely know if there is a resurrection. He has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That He fulfills every promise of God. That He has always been Lord. It's not a new title He assumed when Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth when she's pregnant with Jesus. She says in verse forty-three of Luke one, "How could this happen to me? That the mother of my Lord should come to me?" In other words, He's always been in this role. This in verse 36 from Peter is confirming his already established identity, in other words. So we could say that Peter's speech flipped the script for the Jews. Schreiner writes this, those who had the spirit, they aren't drunk, they are innocent. The audience, though, in this story is guilty because they have crucified Jesus. But God has vindicated The one called in Isaiah the suffering servant Jesus Christ the father has charged them with the crime so Peter's speech is an explanation of all that's happened but also a call out it's a call out of their need of their guilt so we see in verse 37 when when they heard this they were pierced to the heart What what an interesting image you know, whether you maybe realize it or not, at every person in this room's conversion who has become a Christian, Christianity is a conversion religion, you become a Christian, something happened in your heart. John Wesley talks about, uh, back in England, that when he f- understood God's love for him and his need, his heart became strangely warmed. But something pierced in your heart, and that's a good thing. Like, we want our, our hearts to be pierced and see our need for Christ. So they were pierced to the heart. It resonated with them. They understood finally at least the big picture of of what was happening. They at least knew they were guilty as sinners. So they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, it shows the agreement the 12 of them had about Christ. They're kind of speaking together as one voice. They said, brothers, look at this question. We heard you. What do we do? What should we do? How do we respond to this? We have the information now. Like, like what are we supposed to do next? Like, can, can you help us? Can you make it a little more clear? Brothers, what should we do? Then we see Peter's reply. I want you to see the difference in what Peter says and what our society at large would say. Even in Christian context, sadly, sometimes. Our context would often say, try harder, be a better person, find your destiny, get more moral, have better habits, have better discipline, be a better you, be the best version of yourself. And I hope you are the best version of yourself, whatever that means. But what's Peter's reply to them going, what do we Do, because none of those other things, best version of yourself, be a better you, do whatever makes you happy, follow your dreams, be more moral, all those things are probably, some of those are good things. Doing more of what makes you happy leads you on a nice little path of being miserable, side note, but none of those things can change the fact that we've sinned against God. None of those things And that our God will not let sin go unpunished because he's a holy God. So here they ask this question. The fact that Peter even has an answer for them shows the massive love and grace and mercy that our God shows and displays and has for his people. That I will not punish you as your sins deserve. I will not leave you in your sin and I won't leave you with unanswered questions about who I am. Will every question we have get answered this side of heaven? No. I don't know know why certain things happen the way they do. I don't know why that tragedy happened in your life, and I'm not going to pretend to. The Bible wasn't given to answer every single question we have about this life. It was given to make it clear who Jesus is and give us a certain hope that if we, as Peter replied, repent of our sins and receive this free gift of grace, that we will be saved. So he says, repent and be baptized, each of you. In the name of whatever works for you. Hardly. If that was true, then Jesus' death was an absolute waste and an unexplainable tragedy. For the forgiveness of your sins. And what's gonna happen like the other believers that you saw before, you're going to receive the gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit, of God dwelling in you. Repent, turn from your sins. We're going to really get into these verses next week, but in the whole rest of the sermon. But repent, turn from your old ways, turn to Christ. Believe that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and it says get baptized. Now, as he's saying here, you have to be baptized in order to be forgiven of your sins. That's not the context here. In the Bible, we talk about reading the Bible Christologically. It's not just that. Read the Bible all together. It's one big unified story. And we see other people coming to faith in Christ and not having baptism be what saves them. Jesus is who saves us. His cross, his resurrection is what saves us. But he's telling this Jewish audience here that they need to be baptized. Why? Because they need to have a public declaration of their new association. To show others that they're no longer defined by Jewishness, by the law, by the festivals, by the customs, they don't have to recant from being God's people in that way, but now the way you become God's people is through adoption. The Heavenly Father brings you into his family through the blood of Christ. And now it's time for you to publicly associate with Jesus. So you turn, not just from your sins, but you turn from your religion. You're not abandoning your Jewishness. Rather, seeing the fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ. And then you get baptized because you believe that Jesus is the one in his name that has the forgiveness of sins. And you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. We see the Criminal on the cross who died next to Jesus. There's two of them on each, one on each side. Three people on the crosses total. Jesus, two criminals being executed for their crimes. Jesus being executed for crimes he never committed. For our crimes. One mocks Jesus. The other looks at him and goes, You're clearly the one that you claim to be. Will you remember me? Will you forgive me? jesus said i want to remember you today today i remember you in paradise like you're with me like you associate with me now well the man died he didn't have a chance to get baptized he died and he went he's in heaven right now according to the bible so but then you see other stories in the scriptures when you see conversion happen in the book of acts you see baptism When you see folks following Jesus, choosing to follow Jesus, you see them go and get baptized. Why? Because it displays their association now with Jesus Christ. So there really isn't an example of an unbaptized Christian. That's not what saves us because we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. The way we respond to the fact that we've been saved is to associate ourselves with Jesus Christ and baptism is the great symbol of being buried with Christ our, of our, our old life and raising to a new life in Jesus. And the same way these Jewish people, their ancestors, passed through the waters of the Red Sea to freedom. For us, we remember that and it also symbolizes that we pass through the waters into baptism. We baptized, I think it was, we saw 90. One. I looked at my wife like she's supposed to no. know. I baptized. She was like, I don't know. I baptized uh, 91 people last year at our church. How awesome is that? Isn't that incredible? 91 people. Amazing. Yeah. Why? 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 Because the gospel's true. It's true. Have seen folks that just became believers get baptized? We see people who may have been Christians for a long time but never had a chance to get baptized for whatever reason step forward to do that in faith, believing this is they want the world to know their association with Christ through this. And here these people are saying, What do we do? And Peter's basically saying, Well, guess what? Everything's gonna change. Everything's gonna change. You're gonna repent of your sins. You're not gonna be associated with Jesus. What an amazing story. Of God's grace being available to us, so the same Jesus that Peter Peter talked about here and proclaimed, who forgave him despite his great flaws and great great failures, is the same Jesus who forgives us today. So my question for you is: How do you answer if someone's going to say, "Brothers, what do we do with this news? What do you do with Peter's answer? Will you repent of your sins?" We trust in Jesus? Maybe you need to get baptized to show your association with Christ. So you can go out to our Connect Desk afterwards and talk about that. I would love for someone today, before they leave here, to go to our care room. There's a big sign that says care. For you Lincoln High School graduates, it's spelled C-A-R-E, care, out there. And have a conversation with somebody about what it means to trust in Jesus. What it means to side with Peter on what he just said you need to do now you don't have to go in that room to become a Christian just like being baptized doesn't make you a Christian but how great would it be to have a conversation with someone you can respond to the good news they said what do we do what's your response to what Peter has said how do you respond to that good news you know what it often is in Tallahassee just a shrug Yeah, I'm good I mean I'm good with it I'm not an atheist or an agnostic Yeah, you know, that's cool whatever maybe, maybe, we, maybe down the road Either he is the Christ or he's not. And the good news is it's not too late for you to start following Jesus. Like he's not done with you. There's still grace available for you. These were adults here having this conversation. These were adults that were saying, what do we do? And he's saying it's time to give your life to Christ. The one who came here for that reason to reconcile you to God. So my hope is you won't leave here today without having a conversation. And that. We will be ready to give answers when our friends and family ask us, okay, I see a difference. I see a disconnect. What, what do I do? Well, they want them to trust in Jesus is what they do. Let's be lights that help them do that. Let's pray together. If our Father, we are thankful for grace. We're thankful that Peter stood up there, the one who failed miserably, and proclaimed the goodness of your name and the truth of who you are and what you've done, your death and resurrection. We're thankful that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ, Lord, I ask for all of us in this room today that we will feel a sense of comfort seeing Peter being the one to do that, because we know we have our own failures as well and our own sins, and how comforting to know that you don't leave us in that, that you're the rescuer, you're the restorer, you're the healer. Lord, I to ask, start with myself, that our faith will mean something. We won't just have the right answers or know the right stories, but it'll actually mean something in our lives, that our lights will shine before others. I ask that we'll grow for the person that's just checking things out, or the person who's been a Christian for a really long time, that we'll all grow in our knowledge of you, our love of you, and understanding of your love for us. That our affections will increase for Christ. Lord, I lift up those in this room that have siblings or sons and daughters, in-laws, coworkers that don't know Christ. Lord, I ask you pierce their hearts to see and know and believe that you are the one you claim to be. And there's salvation and no one else. And then how richly and openly and widely that message of love goes out. We know the road is narrow through Jesus, but your love is wide. So I ask that we'll be bold because we know this to be true. It is not us, it is Christ. And it's in his name we proclaim. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news.